If you'd like to follow along in your digital worship book, our scripture today is taken from Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bradley. All right, church, if you're not there yet, again, the text that we're in is Matthew chapter 2. Verse 13 through 23. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. And there's something that's unexpected, I think, yet really obvious as we follow the earliest days of Jesus. Um, it's his vulnerability. Jesus is actually incredibly vulnerable as we've been following through the story uh, the past few weeks um, of his arrival uh, onto earth. And perhaps, perhaps this is what actually originally drew you into the story of Jesus. There's something unique about the Christian story that captivated you. You might still have questions, but unlike any other concept of God that we find uh, throughout history or across the world, the incarnation paints a picture of the God of the cosmos with the colors of intimacy, of familiarity, of humility, and much even of the wonder of Christmas, if you will. That little glint in our eye, that, that enjoyment we have in what we are singing is centered on this idea that the Son of God makes himself vulnerable. I think this draws us in because we're vulnerable too, aren't we? There's something honest about that story and recognizable about that story. In his book, Strong and Weak, writer Andy Crouch describes humanity as this healthy blend of authority and vulnerability. And he describes vulnerability, or rather defines it, as an exposure to meaningful risk. Of course, we're not all exposed in the same ways or to the same degree, and I think that's always really important for us to acknowledge, that though we are all vulnerable, we don't all have the same vulnerabilities. Yet to be human is at some level and in various ways to be exposed to meaningful risk. So Jesus being fully human is vulnerable, and in our story today, as we see his vulnerabilities, I think we'll get a picture of ours as well. But that's not all. See, through Jesus' risky early days, if you will, we see something else. We see the Father's sovereign control over everything that Jesus is exposed to. 
Though he's vulnerable, in other words, Jesus is protected, through ancient prophecies and intervening dreams, we're going to see the Father's protection of his Son, and that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the way the Father takes care of his Son in the midst of danger. Why? Because as much as we see the vulnerabilities of our, ourselves in Jesus' vulnerabilities, we also catch a glimpse of the Father's care for us when we see him take care of his one and only Son. You see, Jesus is protection, protected, and in his protection, I think we catch a glimpse of how safe we actually are in him. Here's how we'll organize our time together. We'll look at our need for protection, we'll look at the nature of protection, and then our response to protection. So the need, the nature, and our response. Let's ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, it's kind of wild coming to this story again and again each new year. For some of us, perhaps, for the very first time, considering it more deeply. Uh, it's been a passing thought or story around Christmas time. For others of us, perhaps this is a story we've heard on repeat in the month of December since we were kids. And so I'm grateful that in the middle of all of those different stories and places that we find ourselves in, in being exposed to the story of Jesus' incarnation, the Son of God's incarnation, I thank you that you speak to all of us right where we are. Thank you that if this is the first season we're hearing this story, you speak to us in a way that we can understand. And if we've been tracking with you for 30, 40 years, you still speak to us in a way that overwhelms and delights. And so I pray for my friends, I pray for myself, that as you speak to us today, that we'd hear your word and we would respond with great joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're picking up the story after Jesus' birth, and it's about 5 or 4 B.C., which I find deeply ironic. So Jesus is born 4 or 5 B.C., and this is or rather more like 6 B.C., and this is really ironic because B.C. literally means before Christ. So Jesus is actually born before Christ. I think that's funny, just something that we should note. Nevertheless, the wise men have paid homage to the newborn king in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2. And the shepherds have watched their flock at night. They've seen the angels give glory to God in the highest in Luke chapter 2. And it's at this point that reality sets in. Right? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? The celebration's over. All the pictures have been taken. They've all been posted. All of the visitors have come. Mary and Joseph just got to be parents now. That's it. There's no more people coming to take pictures with them in the hospital room. They got to go home. And every parent knows this feeling. When you first leave the hospital with your newborn and think to yourself or maybe say out loud, there is no way they should trust me with this child. There is no way I should leave the care of dozens and dozens of professionals who have kept this child alive for the past two or three days. There's no way I should leave that. You see, reality is setting in. Mary and Joseph are parents now. At this reality, as it's setting in, Matthew tells us that Joseph is awakened in a dream. Look with me, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child with his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, first of all, you know why he's talking to Joseph, right? 
You know why the angel wakes up Joseph and not Mary, because Mary has been awake all night. She has been awake all night, and the angel is no fool. Everyone knows, do not awake, awaken a new mom's sleep. The little bit of it that she gets, you go and talk to Joseph. You don't talk to Mary, let the poor woman sleep. So though the angel's message, through it, we catch this glimpse, though, this first glimpse of Jesus' need for protection. We get a sense of his vulnerability and the risk he's facing. You see, Jesus is flesh and blood. He's a human baby. Therefore, he's vulnerable to death. Or as one theologian puts it, in the incarnation of the Son of God, he makes himself into something he's never been before, which is killable. He makes himself killable. And the local magistrate, Herod, is exactly what he wants. He wants him dead. And so he has this plan to use the wise men to find Jesus, but they are warned in a dream of their own, if you remember from verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, that's the wise men, departed to their own country by another way. So once this particular threat of discovering Jesus' location through the wise men was no longer an issue, an angel comes to Joseph telling him to take Jesus from Bethlehem to Egypt. Now, Egypt was a common place for Jews, for Jewish refugees in the first century. And let's be very clear, that's what Jesus is. Jesus is a refugee seeking asylum. And throughout Jewish history, Egypt became a sanctuary country for God's people. We see this in First and Second Kings and elsewhere. This, of course, is deeply ironic, but very instructive to us, because the Egyptian government was the government that enslaved God's people for 430 years. And now God is taking his one and only son to the place which was formerly a place of captivity in order to protect him. God is taking what was once a place of extraordinary suffering and danger and is making it a place of peace. That's fantastic. That's beautiful. And Jesus doesn't just pass through Egypt. Notice, look at verse 15 again. It says that he remained there until the death of Herod. Historical records tell us that Herod died in 4 BC. That means Jesus, who was born in 6 BC, would have been a political and religious refugee for at least, or right around, up to rather, the first two years of his life. This gives us a glimpse into the second aspect of Jesus' need for protection. See, though there was a large Jewish community in Egypt, particularly in Alexandria at the time, like any and every refugee, Jesus and his family were no longer home. They were no longer in a place of familiarity where they knew the history, where they knew the language, where they knew what the work environments looked like or what community looked like. You see, to be a refugee is to trade one set of vulnerabilities for another. And Jesus and his family knew this intimately from the very first days of his life. So from those first moments, we see that Jesus needs protection. He's exposed to meaningful risks. His life is threatened. He's forced from his home. Jesus is vulnerable, and in his vulnerability, we see our own. See, we realize how vulnerable we are as Herod begins to exact violence upon the region. Let's continue on in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
See, though Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were likely not the only family to flee when they heard about Herod's plot, and as that began to spread around the region, many could not get out of Bethlehem. Many stayed in Bethlehem, and the best estimates tell us that about 20 to 30 baby boys were executed in Herod's massacre. You see, there is where we see our own vulnerability. Like Jesus, we are flesh and blood. We're killable. We're vulnerable because like Jesus, many of us, in fact, are even under evil and oppressive powers ourselves. We can relate to that. Power dynamics at work, inequitable government systems that you benefit or don't benefit from, family power structures that hurt and harm more than they help and heal. And even if we, like perhaps many of us, are privileged enough to be in positions of power on earth where no direct authority threatens our well-being on a daily basis, the Apostle Peter says that we are all spiritual refugees. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Sojourners and exiles. See, while this passage in Matthew chapter 2 should make us deeply mindful of our friends and neighbors who are refugees seeking asylum in our city, we should also be mindful that none of us are home yet. None of us are home yet. We are all daily exposed to meaningful risks that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as a light and momentary affliction. That's what he called life. So the question for us then, as it was for Jesus in that day, is where do we find protection? How do we find protection if we are that vulnerable? Well, it's clear, and this is the good news, that the Father does not leave his Son unprotected. Jesus' willingness to be exposed, in fact, creates this space, this moment in time, if you will, for us to bear witness, to see the Father's great love and care. See, the Father protects His Son. And in His protection, we see the way that the Heavenly Father takes care of you, the way He takes care of me and our own vulnerabilities. Look at verse 19 as we continue. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Once again, Jesus and his family are on the move. They continue to seek asylum in various different parts of the known world. Now they go to eat to Israel, particularly to the region of Judea. You see, after Herod's death, his kingdom was parsed out in four different regions. Three of his sons take over three of the regions, and his sister takes over the fourth. Judea was ruled, as Matthew tells us, by a man, his son named Archelaus, who we find through history is even more ruthless than his father. And so Jesus' family goes to Galilee, specifically to Nazareth, where they find a much more chill son of Herod ruling over that particular part of the country. Now, in this new migration, a central theme is repeated. Let's draw it out. Notice in verse 23, Matthew says, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. 
Something was anticipated, my brothers and sisters, long ago that is now coming to fruition. It's now being fulfilled. It's now manifesting in the life of Jesus. That's the theme. This is where we begin to see the nature of the Father's protection come into focus. You see, at every turn of Jesus' need, the protection of the Father had been foretold by biblical prophets. Look back through the passage with me quickly at verse 15. So if you're in 23, eyes back up to verse 15. Jesus is exiled into Egypt, was promised by the prophet Hosea. This is where Matthew draws our attention to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 through 2. Verse 15, or excuse me, verse 17 and 18. So move down a couple of verses there. Herod's massacre of the Bethlehem boys was seen by the prophet Jeremiah thousands of years before it happened in Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And Matthew is making this connection. Look again at verse 23. Jesus' arrival in Nazareth was promised by various prophets, Matthew says. While this is not a direct quote like the other references, Isaiah communicates that the Messiah's arrival is going to be unexpectedly obscure. In other words, it's not going to come with pomp and circumstance. He says we aren't going to recognize him in Isaiah 52 and 53, and he's going to show up in ways that we could not have imagined a king to show up. He's going to come in humility. And in fact, even the word, the term Nazarene, was slang for an individual coming from a remote or obscure place. What's this tell us? It tells us that the nature of the Father's protection is demonstrated in his foresight through the prophets. See, like a good and loving parent, the Heavenly Father anticipates the implications of his son's weaknesses. In other words, he looks at his son and he knows what's going to happen to him. And so he makes provision. He makes a plan. He calls his shot. He says, I know this is going to happen, and here's what I'm going to do about it. I know that when you come in frailty of humanity and of human flesh, these things are going to now be meaningful risks to you, and I'm going to speak through my prophets and work through my people and work through dreams, and I'm going to take care of you. In other words, the nature of the Father's protection reveals the nature of the Father himself. Are you with me, church? He is all loving. He loves his son so much he's going to take care of him. But not only that, a good and loving parent doesn't just anticipate what's going to happen to their child and sit back and watch it happen, right? I knew that was going to happen. I told you. I told you that was going to happen. We just watch him fall, right? Maybe every now and then for a good laugh or maybe an important life lesson. But generally speaking, we become familiar with our children's weaknesses or proclivities so that we can help them, protect them, and make sure that they flourish and thrive. See, a good and loving parent doesn't just know that they're their child's weaknesses. They anticipate those vulnerabilities, and then they intercede on behalf of their child to appropriately care for them and take care of them and protect them. That's the second aspect that we see here. See, the father works in real space and real time to take care of his son. He speaks through dreams and works through people to keep his son safe. So he is an all-loving God, but he is also all-powerful. This is captured even in his name. We call him Heavenly Father. Why? Heavenly, he's all-powerful. Father, he's all-love. Theologian Michael Reeves explains, it is only when we see that God rules creation as a kind and loving Father that we will be moved to delight in his providence. See, as we witness the Father's powerful love for his Son, we understand, we learn to trust and even celebrate his powerful love for us. But if we're honest, and I think if we just read the text with our own humanity and our own human vision, 
This leads us to a really important obstacle in this passage, something perhaps that you picked up on immediately and have been asking yourself this entire time, something perhaps you can relate to. See, after all, the father protects his son, but what about all those other sons that Herod killed? Or we might ask, if the heavenly father is really loving, why did my parent die? Why am I suffering? Why am I not married yet? Why don't we have children? Or more broadly, we ask, how could a good and loving father allow any kind of pain and suffering? See, it's in moments like this that we're tempted to split God's character in half. You see, we often interpret our need for protection as the absence of God's protection. Church, let's please hear this. We often interpret our need for protection, that we have vulnerability, as the absence of God's protection, that either He is able to help and doesn't care, or that He is unable to help us. He doesn't have the power or He doesn't have the love. Perhaps that's the tension you feel as you read about this massacre of Hebrew baby boys, that God saves His Son, but not these sons of 30 other families. How could that be good? He must not be able to help. He must not care to help. Danish writer Isaac Denison once said that all sorrows can be born if they are put into a story. I think that's really true. And what's interesting about this particular moment in history is that no other historical documents cover the execution of these Bethlehem baby boys. There's no other record outside of the scriptures that captures this moment in time. Now, this has led some to believe and to suggest that the massacre never happened, that Matthew made it up to create a little bit of narrative tension. Others surmise that Herod's violent exploits were so frequent and so massive that 30 male children in Bethlehem was of little historical value to biographers and to history writers. But this is precisely where we see the heart of our Heavenly Father. God remembered those boys. When no one else recorded their death, it was not only proclaimed before time or before it happened, but he remembers those boys in the middle of his son's story. The father saw his son, but he also saw these sons. Generations before their unjust execution, God even began to lament their loss. When we see death and suffering within the narrative arc of the Heavenly Father's love and power, I think that's where we find more understanding and hope. See, in the larger narrative, the Father didn't save Jesus instead of these boys. It's just the opposite. See, while at first it might seem that Jesus is spared and dozens of boys are murdered, ultimately Jesus makes himself the most vulnerable. You see, the Father protected Jesus from Herod, but he did not protect him from the horror of the cross. In fact, Jesus is ridiculed as he is dying, hanging on a cross for not saving himself. The religious elites gathered as this baby boy named Jesus grew 30 years old, hanging on a cross. They ridiculed him and said, he saved others, he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. You see, the nature of protection is wrapped up within the story of an all-loving and all-powerful Heavenly Father. His protection is not demonstrated by going toe-to-toe with this earthly dictator, Herod. Jesus was protected from Herod so that he could be utterly unprotected on the cross. 
And through his death, these baby boys enjoy eternal life. So do you. So do I. In fact, because Jesus left his home to die, when he returns, we will no longer be killable and we will be home forever. So how do we respond? How do we respond to our need for protection and to God's nature and demonstrated through the ways that he protected his son and protects us? Well, at first blush, the one person who doesn't seem vulnerable is Herod, right? After all, he's the one exacting this violence and inflicting fear and death in the story, using his power to hurt the least and the last and the lost and the most vulnerable. He's the only one, it seems, who is not exposed to meaningful risk. But upon further consideration, Herod is completely exposed by the birth of Jesus. If you remember back in verses 1 and 2 in Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 3 rather, in Matthew chapter 2, it says that now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Israel, or rather all of Jerusalem with him. Notice that Herod was greatly troubled. Why? Because he doesn't want to lose his throne. And he's a narcissist. He's a narcissist who's incredibly insecure. And insecure narcissists respond to vulnerability with things like anger and violence. Psychologist uh, Darlene Lancer explains that when a narcissist feels vulnerable, they crave power and vigilantly must control their environment. People around them and their feelings, their defense system protects them but hurts other people. When they feel most insecure, they're more malicious and the impact of their actions is irrelevant. That's Herod. Before anyone in the first century had language for what he was demonstrating, we are seeing a maniacal, narcissistic, absolutely insecure leader. He feels completely vulnerable. That's one response that we have when we know that we need protection. When we know we need protection, we try to protect ourselves. Now, you don't have to be a narcissistic dictator or a murderous ruler to exhibit this kind of behavior, right? I think we can all admit that. We've been to Thanksgivings and Christmases before. We're all part of family networks. So, so resist the urge to think about the narcissists in your life and simply <laughs> consider that defensiveness is really the fruit of not trusting that the Heavenly Father, who is all-loving and all-powerful, protects you. See, when I am being selfish, when I am being defensive, when I am fighting against something, I am almost always disbelieving that the Heavenly Father sees me, that He cares, that He loves me, and He's going to do something about it. I wonder... Is that something you recognize in your own life? A failure to trust that God protects you, that God sees you, that God loves you, that God is able to intercede for you. Do you instead try to protect yourself? I know I do. For me, this results in almost always trying to control my reputation. I feel really vulnerable when someone leaves our church. What are they going to say about me? It's not about y'all. It's about me. <laughs> This is not about what God's doing in their life. This is not about them disagreeing with us. This is always about me, is what I tell myself. 
So I see them show up on Instagram. They go, my new church is great. And I was like, you punk. And I slammed my phone down. Our church is great because I'm great. So I stay off of Instagram for another two years after I have that kind of an interaction. I feel really vulnerable when people leave our church because I feel like I have to control my reputation and what people think about me. I feel, I feel really vulnerable when I meet with a loud talker at a coffee shop because invariably we're talking about things of God and I'm like, I can't explain myself to that waiter when they just said God came down in a dream. You know, I'm like, I got, can, can we talk about what that means? Can I give you some context um, about that? Or like when God said to me, I'm like, oh, okay. So you're sitting literally right next to me in Logan Square because you know the table's six inches apart. You got to pull the table out so that you can even get to the bench. I have a really hard time with a loud talker in a coffee shop because I can't control my reputation and what people think about me. It's really uncomfortable. I just told my small group this this week. I had to deal with it. You know, the other thing I feel really vulnerable is when my children don't act right, or at least the way that I think they're supposed to act in public. All of a sudden, I think that my reputation as a dad is completely on the line. You know, when you get that third call in a week from the school that says your child cussed again, you go, oh, praise God. Praise God they feel free and they know all of the words. They know all of the English words. Um, but we, I feel like we're on speed dial now with some of these folks. Like, yeah, I know the drill. Yeah, restorative conversation tomorrow. That's great. We'll get all the people involved and you'll give me feedback. Appreciate it. I'm like, oh, my gosh. They think we're terrible people, and I'm like a pastor, so now they're never going to follow Jesus, they hate the local church, and now they're going to go to hell, right? I mean, that's where I go, because it's my reputation that holds everything together. Am I preaching to you yet? (laughs) This is what the Lord is showing me. When I don't trust that he protects me, I try to protect myself, and I feel really vulnerable and really unprotected when really I am the most protected. When really, I am safe. See, in those moments, I'm tempted to protect myself instead of trusting that a loving and all-powerful Heavenly Father sees me, protects me, and He's going to take care of my reputation. By the way, protecting ourselves never goes well. We always think, I, I, can, I can make sure to write this story correctly. I can control this situation. We think that it's uh, vulnerable the vulnerable people are the ones that are going to end up dead. (laughs) Losing the very thing that we really most desire. But who dies in this story? Herod. Herod dies without the very thing that he is trying to protect, power, his throne. And so that is not a healthy response, I'd like to suggest to you, to try to protect yourself. But there's another response, and it's really subtly conveyed in this passage today, and it's found in Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph respond very differently to their need for protection, which I think is instructive to you and it's instructive for me. Look again at verses 13 and 14. The angel says, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. What do they do? They rose, took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt. You see how subtle that is? They heard an angel say, here's what God says. They obeyed it. They trusted their heavenly father and they were protected. Look at verse 20 and 21. The angel said, rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. And we see, what do they do? And he rose, he took the child and his mother and they went to the land of Israel. They obeyed, they trusted their father and they were protected. Lastly, check out verse 22. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. They obeyed, they trusted their father, and what? They were protected. 
Mary and Joseph's response reminds me of what a woman named Corrie Ten Boom once said. She said, the safest place is in the center of God's will. The safest place is in the center of God's will. Now, we might pessimistically think, well, that's a nice sentiment. Sounds good. Put that on a coffee mug and everybody will be happy, right? We might even belittle her, suggesting that that's easy for someone to say, or rather that how could you say that when there is so much suffering in the middle of God's will, that it will somehow free you from suffering. But that's not true, is it? That a lot of times, even in the midst of being safe in his will, we do go through painful situations. That's not what Tim Boom's point is at all. You see, she was a Dutch Christian who was instrumental in helping Jews escape occupied Nazi areas, and she was imprisoned for it. This is not a woman who tritely shellacks something on a plate and says, hey, here's a good sentiment to live by. She followed her heavenly father directly into harm's way and trusted that despite the pain and suffering she would endure, his will was the safest place she could be. That's the other response. We can either self-protect or we can surrender. This is ultimately what we see Jesus do. He surrenders to his heavenly Father. On the shore of the crucifixion, he prays in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Church in the square, even in death, Jesus trusted that the safest place for him to be was at the center of his Father's will. And it did not mean avoiding suffering. It meant enduring it. It meant walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And I wish, it seems that he wishes that there was another way. But true protection comes through conquering what it is that makes us vulnerable. Conquering that which causes suffering. Conquering that which brings death and chaos and pain and confusion and the need for men and women to flee their homes and to all be spiritual refugees, regardless of their citizenship status. See, the invitation for us, we have to be so careful, is not to try harder to surrender this season. It's very American of us. I'm going to try harder to not try. I'm going to try harder to release control. (laughs) See, the invitation is rather for us to realize that Christ has done what he has already done and that the Father has protected him so that we too can learn to enjoy the protection of our Father amidst our own persistent vulnerabilities. I think what we'll discover is that even places where there was past suffering can be places of deep and wonderful peace. Let's ask for the Lord's help in this. Heavenly Father, we confess that when our vulnerabilities show up, we try to take control. I know I do. That when we feel unprotected, we try to protect ourselves instead of hide ourselves within your will. So would you this season give us clarity about what it means to be your kids, what it means to be sons and daughters who are loved, sons and daughters who are seen, sons and daughters who are protected, sons and daughters who one day will experience the wholeness of home, who one day will no longer be vulnerable to the effects that plague this light and momentary affliction. And so between now and then, Father, would you give us your peace? 
would you give us a great picture of your son who came in human frailty and vulnerability and who you protected so that we could find ultimate protection in him. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.